This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and to answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this lovely Saturday morning, September 17th, 2022. And this is our 102nd consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're still cruising here in Connecticut with a positivity rate of about 10%. Um, This week it was 10.25%. But I think as we all know, that percentage is artificially lower than it should be because those are the tests that are only done with PCR testing that are done in the hospital, not the home tests. And most people we know use the home tests these days. And the home tests are somewhat unreliable from the standpoint that you have to use them several times, you know, if you suspect that you have COVID-19. And it's just almost anecdotally that we all know more and more people who are just coming down with it, uh, either because they're not wearing masks, people are in close contact. uh, We have diminished the need for social distancing. Uh, So um, these are things we need to be aware of, especially as we get into the fall. Uh, I got my new uh, booster this past week, Uh, went to my local pharmacy and scheduled an appointment, and uh, it was uh, fine. Uh, I think some of the things you have to bear in mind with the new booster, and one of the things came to my attention this week is that please confirm with the person giving you the booster that it is the bivalent booster because when they created the labeling for the new booster it's the same color as the old one and the cap the rubber cap that you draw it out of is also the same gray color as the previous vaccine So the only way you know the difference is because the label says bivalent as opposed to monovalent. Uh, In my case, uh, I asked the pharmacist specifically to be sure that this was the bivalent vaccine. And she informed me that they don't have the monovalent vaccine anymore. Whatever they had, they either ran out of or sent back so that they're only using the bivalent which is believed to be the more effective vaccine as we get into this year where we're dealing with new variants of the virus. So something to make sure of when you're out getting the vaccine. And once again, myself and other experts in the field strongly suggest that you get it. Even if you didn't get the other two boosters, but you at least have the basic first two shots or the Johnson & Johnson initial shot, get this booster because it will certainly help to keep you safe 
from the standpoint that either not getting COVID or if you get COVID, you will have less risk for becoming hospitalized. Uh, And that's important. That's really where the rubber meets the road in this. Today, my guest is going to be Ms. Beth Conley. She is a speech therapist and consultant to multiple institutions. Uh, We first met when I was working at Bacchus Hospital, and she was kind of my go-to person when it came to patients with a variety of speech or swallowing abnormalities. Now, before anybody gets upset with me, You know, we're going to talk to her about the difference between speech therapy and speech pathologist. So people, professionals in this field have have begun now the term they like to use is speech pathologist. But she's always told me that she considers herself more of a therapist. So um, if you're a speech pathologist uh, out there, I recognize that there are different terms to be used here. September 17, 1991, was the day Frank Netter died. Now, Dr. Netter, as many of you will know, uh, was an American surgeon and famous illustrator. He died at the age of 85. Uh, We know him well here in Connecticut because of the medical school that's named after him at Quinnipiac University, the Frank Netter School of Medicine. But Dr. Netter's story is, is a very interesting one. Uh, in growing up in New York, in Manhattan, he was an artist. He went to art school and wanted to be an artist and an illustrator and really was accomplished in doing that, in starting out in his education. But his family felt that that was not a good profession for him and he should go to medical school. So... His backup plan was to go to medical school. He went to medical school. He went to NYU and then did a residency at Bellevue Hospital in surgery. Now, doing that in Bellevue Hospital, I would think in the early 1930s, had to be uh, very interesting. Bellevue was the main hospital for Manhattan, and the stories and books written about it uh, were tremendous in the work they did. But... Dr. Netter decided to go into private practice. And when he did in 1933, uh, as many of you have experienced, that was the height of the Depression. So going into private practice in 1933 was not necessarily a good move. And uh, the only people who may have stumbled into your office certainly had no means of paying you. But what was interesting was that He never abandoned his art as an illustrator. So as a medical student, he did a lot of illustrations for his professors and found that he could make some money by doing medical illustrations for different companies. And the biggest one came when a pharmaceutical firm came to him and asked him to do some of these drawings. Uh, And it's a great story because it's a misunderstanding that worked to his advantage. So he had agreed to do five illustrations for $1,500. Now, his understanding was he was getting a total of $1,500. But the pharmaceutical company's understanding was that 
he was getting $1,500 each. So they paid him $7,500 for those original drawings. And suddenly, he found that he could make a lot more money doing this than being a surgeon. The big break came from uh, Siba Geige, uh, was a famous pharmaceutical company, and they hired him to do illustrations. Uh, many people have seen it. I know every medical student has certainly seen it. It's a 13-volume uh, group of books that show all of his illustrations. His most famous one was one of his early ones that he did of the heart, where you would open different uh, pages of the heart and see different levels of the heart. And many heart surgeons credit him um, with adding to education with just that drawing that became um, so famous. So today we, we remember Dr. Netter uh, for all of his work that continues uh, in medical education. And uh, we are grateful for a misunderstanding that changed the course of his career as it does to many people, uh, different things come up in your life that suddenly help you make a little change in uh, the way your career is going. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to discuss some quick topics that I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, we're always concerned about dementia and mild cognitive impairment. So I want to talk a little bit about a new study that was just published in Neurology. Uh, we're also going to talk about safety in healthcare facilities. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. One of the topics I get the most email on has been the topic of dementia and mild cognitive impairment. And uh, I really want to talk a little bit about these entities. I mean, whenever we think of dementia, we think of Alzheimer's disease, uh, which is the most common form of dementia. Uh, but there are also many other varieties. So it's among our greatest fears is losing our cognitive abilities. Mild cognitive impairment is something we see early on where we're starting to fail from a cognitive standpoint that can indeed lead to uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease. But a recent study published in the Green Journal, Neurology, was based on a study performed in the United Kingdom. And uh, in this particular study, uh, they looked at uh, over 500,000 patients. And so they took over half a million participants. And again, from the, uh, the UK, the United Kingdom Biobank. So they keep careful track of health statistics on their population. Again, something we don't do a great job of here in the United States, but it helps them. So they looked at these participants in the study and recruited them between 2006 and 2010. And they followed them for a year after recruitment until, at, so every year after the recruitment until 2019 to see who developed dementia or mild cognitive impairment. And when they looked at this, the conclusions were things that we've talked about on this program being Physical activity was key, and that could be activity during leisure time, uh, housework, 
related activity, you know, mowing the lawn, being out there and being active, and even transportation, walking to work, or if you drive to work, parking at a park. You don't have to get the parking spot closest to the door. Okay, so try to park a little further away so you get more steps in and keep track of that. So, again, that made a big difference in their study. They also looked at mental activity. So if you can continue working, volunteering, just using your mind, okay, on a regular basis, including social contact and even using electronic devices, learning how to use electronic devices and using it for mental activity made such a big difference. Now, you might say, well, you've said this before, and, and I have, but this study looked a little further and found that these things helped independent of genetics. So many people are out there saying, well, my mother or father were demented, so I'm going to be demented. And that's not necessarily the case. G genetics play a role in it, but by the same token, if we look at this study in particular, we see that independent of this, we now can put aside developing dementia early on. I've always asked myself, okay, why? Why is physical activity have anything to do with this? And it's interesting because a study performed by my colleague and friend, Dr. Eva Feldman at the University of Michigan, really looks at this. Now, Dr. Feldman is well known for her work in diabetes. And she's a neurologist, as I said, but she looks at the effects of diabetes on peripheral nerve. She also is well known for her really cutting edge research and work done in the field of Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. But in this particular study and, and this interview she did, they looked at people who had excess belly flap, especially in the mint section, that this promotes inflammation in cells. And these inflammatory chemicals from abdominal fat damage brain tissue. So now you're thinking, what does, how does that happen? And it's very interesting because we've talked about on this program insulin resistance, right? Insulin resistance in cells that really work against you with type 2 diabetes. Well, they've also found that this same insulin resistance plays a role in cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and other neurodegenerative diseases. What happens is the nerve cells develop this resistance to insulin, and they are unable to use sugar effectively, glucose. And in doing so, it harms the nerve cells. So that's why you want to keep control of your weight and keep physically and mentally active. And uh, I think that we could all take something from that um, as we get older. Uh, well, you know, children are back to school, and I want to talk a little bit about children and sleep habits. So. It was interesting that in looking at this, we're not getting children enough sleep. 
And that's really what happens in we develop this problem of being able to concentrate in school. We seem to be moving the school day up earlier, and I know I sound like a broken record when I get to that. But aside from that, ages 6 to 12, children ages 6 to 12 need 9 to 12 hours of sleep a night. And those between 13 and 18 need 8 to 10 hours of sleep a night. What's important is that they develop a consistent schedule when it comes to sleep. And parents need to look at that now that the school year has begun. Uh, I've gotten several questions about uh, a new device called the Guardian Helmet. Uh, So now that football is here, we're starting to see what is a cap that goes over a helmet that is cushioned. So it's like a, a pillow type cap that goes over a football helmet to try and avoid concussion. It's been around for years. And the jury has been out regarding how much help it really gives. And so the jury's back, and we're finding that it does help. This was a study done through the National Football League where they had several teams have their linemen use this during practice. And what they found is this guardian cap helps in low-impact collisions. So linemen hitting into each other and maybe hitting heads, that may give some measure of protection to the brain. It does not help in high-velocity impact, such as a running back uh, being tackled or on special teams. So we'll keep track of this, but there may be some help given through the use of the guardian cap uh, that uh, people have mentioned and high schools are starting to use. I wanted to talk about, I read an article this week about, uh, you know, staying safe in turbulent times. I thought it was interesting. And it was uh, specifically for neurologists, but physicians in general in talking about the need to stay safe when administering care in your clinic. Whoever thought we'd be talking about this one? But here we are, right? Tulsa, Oklahoma, a few months ago, uh, a man with back pain uh, was faulting his orthopedic surgeon for his continued pain and came in and killed several people in the office, including patients and other healthcare physicians and practitioners. In Boston, 2015, at Brigham and Women's, we had that. And University of Michigan, in the ENT department, about 30 years ago, we had an incident. And in fact, these violent crimes against healthcare professionals have tripled in the past two decades. And that was just published in the Journal of Prevention and Assessment and Rehabilitation. So we're seeing this rise in this action against healthcare workers. In fact, I'll be attending a training protocol at the University of Connecticut uh, for all healthcare workers in terms of what to do, what to do in these situations. Many institutions are now putting in panic buttons into exam room. Imagine this. So you have to have a panic button in the exam room. Uh, if you think you're in an unsafe situation. And in neurology, uh, it's particularly difficult because uh, 
you know, many of our patients are under a lot of stress. They're uh, in pain, and, and many are cognitively impaired. And unfortunately, uh, none of those things, even cognitive impairment, does not keep you from owning a, a weapon. So with that, uh, you really have to be attuned to this if you're in the healthcare. It's not just physicians, it's our medical assistants, nurses, anybody involved. So it's a sad sign of the times. And, and really uh, what they're going back to uh, is, you know, the idea of if you're confronted uh, with this, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a need to take the appropriate steps. And basically, they try to keep it down. You run, hide, and if all else fails, fight. That's different. That third thing, they always said, no, don't engage or whatever. But now they're saying is you're fighting for your life. You could assume that that person is there to kill you. And uh, it's important uh, for healthcare people to know that. And it's important for patients to know that and always be aware of your surroundings, not just in these settings, because we live in tragically dangerous times. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, uh, Beth Conley, who is going to talk to us about speech therapy, speech pathology, and her particular interest in the area of swallowing, people who develop swallowing difficulties and how to work with those people so that they can keep up their adequate nutrition. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and this half of our program gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Ms. Beth Conley. Uh, Ms. Conley is uh, a friend of mine and colleague that I've worked with for many years uh, when I started when I was working at Bacchus Hospital and we worked a lot with stroke patients and other patients with neuromuscular disorders who were in need of care regarding speech therapy and uh, she has been uh, the go-to person for me when it comes to these topics. Beth, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Beth, let's start out with the speech therapy, speech pathology thing, okay, <laughs> because I often get that wrong. Some professionals in your field prefer to be called speech therapists. Others prefer to be called speech pathologists. I think the speech pathologist group is growing faster. Um, is there a difference, or is it just a personal preference? I believe it's a personal preference, Um very early on, uh, I went by speech language pathologist um, and would introduce myself that way to patients. And oftentimes they would hear the word pathology and think cancer. Okay. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time in my early years uh, working with physical therapists and occupational therapists and really working on not only the diagnosing, but most importantly, the treating of difficult differences. Um, so that's really when I personally adopted speech therapist as opposed to speech language pathologist. It really is potato, potato. It's a personal preference. 
That's interesting, though, because I think from a patient standpoint, I never thought of it that way, that, uh, you know, when you think of therapy, you think that, okay, this person's going to get me better, um, right. uh, you know, as opposed to pathology sending me to the morgue. So uh, right. I, think that's, I think that's a good uh, use of the dichotomy. But let's talk a little bit about it. But what's the education, the ke- educational background behind someone who goes into speech as a profession? Um, Well, it is um, a six-year degree, so uh, four years um, undergraduate program, usually in communication sciences and disorders. Um, And in our undergraduate and and our graduate program, we move on, um, and we actually learn a lot um, about both speech and audiology, um, those majors tend to go together, and what most people don't realize as speech therapists, we also spend a lot of time learning how to test hearing and fit for hearing aids, um, but there comes a point where you have to kind of pick a tract, whether you're going to go the speech route or the audiology route. Um, we move on to our master's um, degree, um, two years. Um, usually most programs either either have a thesis or a comprehensive exam at the end of that to graduate. And once we graduate, we then participate in a nine-month residency or fellowship um, with a mentor, uh, which is, um, I think, one of the best assets of our profession um, because you're allowed to be side-by-side with a skilled, experienced therapist to help you through all the differences that can come your way. Um, And during that time, we end up taking a national exam um, boards um, in speech pathology and then applying for a state license and then joining um, a professional certification. So at what point, you already mentioned that you have to decide whether you're going to do uh, audiology or speech, but at what mm-hmm. point, there are so many areas within speech. Can you talk a little bit about those in areas sure. people start to specialize in? Is it kind of when you're doing that fellowship residency type of postgraduate training that you decide that? Um, Just bring everybody up to date on this. Sure. Sure. Usually it's much more um, in your graduate program. As a part of our graduate program, we have to do clinicals. We do clinicals in both um, pediatrics and adults. Um, They really don't let you uh, specialize that early. So that's really, I think, where people start to get a feeling whether they want to go to work with pediatrics, whether it's medical pediatrics or in the school system or private practice or working with adults. Um, So, you know, those are really the two first decisions to make. Um, But speech therapy encompasses so much. Um, You know, it really is. We do a lot of prevention um, work, assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and, you know, the gambit runs large. There's speech, there's language, cognition, communication, voice, swallowing, and it's across the lifespan. So anybody who's out there who's looking for variety in their career choices, I can't tell you enough to go and find find a speech therapist that you can shadow. This is the career for you. Um, difference between pediatric and adult. I mean, um... Can we talk a little bit about that uh, specifically? Um, yeah, you know, pediatric, when we're in school, we certainly have to learn uh, stages of development. 
Um, and, and, you know, so the pediatric focus is really based on normative data, um, where kids are supposed to be at a certain age, and are they admitting, hitting those milestones? If they're not hitting those milestones, it's really working with the family um, to help them help the children meet those milestones. Um, in my experience, that, that seems to be the best way um, that we're kind of looking at that. But again, even in pediatrics, um, you can have those same variations of speech, language, cognition, swallowing, voice. It can run the whole gamut. So um, that's what makes it so interesting. Let's talk a little bit about language. I mean, uh, mm. obviously, the ability to understand and use language is so crucial to our lives and our being. And often, um, somebody may have a language impairment, and instead they're mistaken for having a cognitive impairment. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about uh, language difficulties like aphasia? We talked a little bit on this sure. program about uh, Julie Chin having a stroke and developing a language sure. problem and then aphasia. But sometimes sure. those people are mistaken for being cognitively impaired when they all they have is a difficulty using language. Right. Absolutely. I mean, language is, is a vital part of human connection. Um, you know, all species have a way of communicating, but humans are the only ones that have actually mastered the cognitive language communication piece. So it, it's, it's vital to allow us to share our ideas, our thoughts, our feelings with everyone. And it also has a lot to do, um, it's a vital part of our culture. It's what we use to communicate the aspects of our culture, like rules and values, things like that. Um, and people are introduced to their culture through language at a very early age. Um, you know, you talk to many, many people who have um, bilingual in their household, and they might not be able to speak it, but they will understand it. Um, you know, I grew up in a household which was primarily English speaking, but when my parents didn't want us to know what they were talking about, they used Yiddish. And I can't speak Yiddish, but I can certainly understand some of the really important parts of it. So language is is key. Um, and, and, you know, uh, many, many people can really um, focus with that and connect with that. Um, you know, so certainly um, following a stroke with aphasia, we run into the problem with language all the time. Um, different types of strokes in different areas of the brain will affect the language output. And, you know, really two biggest uh, designations is whether there's a fluent aphasia or a non-fluent aphasia. Um, and, you know, it, it, that fluent aphasia means that somebody is just going to be able to talk. They're going to be able to talk and not necessarily hear what they're saying. Um, and they have no awareness that what they're saying doesn't make sense. They might say something like, you know that smoodle pinkered and I want to get him around and take care of him. And they are having a thought in their head and they have no idea that those words that they just said were not the same words that they heard in their head. Um, you know, as opposed to a non-fluent aphasic, um, those people also know exactly what they want to say in their head, but the words will, literally will not come out. Um, they might say something like, there are two books, book, book, two table. 
And what they're trying to tell you is that there are two books on the table. So the content is there. They can hear their errors. They're trying to make the, the changes, but they just can't remediate it. And to be honest with you, uh, most people with that non-fluent aphasia are usually much more frustrated. Um, the fluent aphasic is usually happily going along, not realizing that the words that are coming out are not making sense. So when you look at that problem in, mm-hmm. in somebody, how, how do you approach the therapy um, for that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I have always taken the approach that I am a partner with that patient and we're going to get through it and I understand that their cognition, their thinking is not impaired. That is my first obstacle to get to them and the family to say they know what they want to say. And I will tell the patient that any way I can, via gestures, language, I will draw a picture if I have to, to let them know I know that they know what they want to say. And that that is a huge obstacle. And so certainly with the, the fluent aphasic, you know, we start with getting them to understand what is being said. So it's following directions, getting them to um, breaking it down really simple and, and just me identifying an object and getting them to be able to point to the correct object. And we start really at that base level to get their understanding better. So once their understanding is improved, then they can realize that what is coming out is not working. Um, the, you know, uh, classic of that is, you know, lots of times we'll be working on um, understanding and speech kind of simultaneously. And sometimes, you know, I've worked with patients in the past and we're working on trying to get a word and really trying hard and, and giving them ideas. And I was working with a patient and we were stuck on, we were doing body parts and she was naming them and we were stuck on F and she was F and F. And out of her mouth came the word phalanges. <laughs> and I looked at her and said, phalanges? Now, this patient was an x-ray technician prior wow. to her stroke. Wow. And, and so for her, fingers wasn't the word. It was phalanges. So that's why it's so imperative to know your patient. It's so imperative when you're doing an evaluation. It really isn't just the patient. It's the patient, um, their family, whether it's their spouse or their kids, because you've got to learn about that patient because I would have never gotten anywhere with finger. But phalanges made a big difference. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, we'll talk sure. a little bit about neuromuscular problems and sure. difficulties with swallowing. Uh, sure. I, I wanted to get into And First of all, when we, we have patients with ALS who gradually mm-hmm. lose their ability to communicate uh, by voice and, and lose their yeah. voice from that standpoint, uh, what kind of strategies do you use for them? For uh, communication? Yeah. Yeah. So primarily, um, when I, hopefully I meet an ALS patient early on in their diagnosis, um, and I, while they still have a voice, and I really encourage them to record a voice bank um, of their actual voice. Uh, saying phrases, things that they say every day that they want to say that they could ever think of saying, because then we can use 
um, computer programs, once they've lost their voice, for them to be able to speak, and it's using their own voice. So um, that's key. Um, obviously, the early diagnosis is key for many reasons, um, but getting connected with a speech therapist as early as possible is vital. That's a big difference from the old signboard. Um, yeah, very big difference, or even the computer talking for you, which which is an option, and, you know, our, our voice um, computer-based technology has certainly improved, but there is no better impro- no better sound than hearing your own voice to say the things that you want to be said. So again, one of our problems with neuromuscular diseases, whether it be oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy, Lou Gehrig's disease, is swallowing, and even after stroke, swallowing. How do you approach yeah. that problem? Well, um, you know, and... Those are all certain diagnoses that definitely will have difficulty swallowing. But, you know, there's even uh, weakness, discoordination, sensory changes from from advanced age as well, Um, stroke, TBI, head and neck cancer. So um, the first part is the diagnosing piece. So uh, I think the important piece to get out to people is to realize if they are consistently coughing, there's a reason for that. Our cough response is reflexive. It protects us. It happens to all of us every once in a while. But if it is happening on a regular basis, and by that I mean, you know, at least a few times a day, five, six times a week, you need to talk to your physician. And at that point, they will likely send you to be evaluated um, by a speech therapist. The gold standard really Um, You know, once you see a speech therapist and they look at the muscle function and the sensory function, they might send you for something that's called a modified barium swallow test, which is something we um, complete in conjunction with our radiology partners. And we look at the phases of swallowing. We take a moving picture and watch um, different types of foods and liquids go down. And more than just watching, which is one of my favorite parts is that right there in the moment, we see if we can try some techniques, some strategies to help the food or the liquid go down the right way or better or not feel stuck or have leftover in your throat, all of those things. So um, that's usually our first step. Um, Okay. So now once you have really looked at the problem, um, what are the options for somebody? Is it, uh, I know there are certain exercises you try to work with people, but um, uh, there are a lot of different approaches to it. What do you do next? There are, there are. So, um, you know, certainly uh, in the acute phase, meaning um, if this problem is coming up in the hospital or, you know, there is food or liquid going down the wrong way, um, sometimes the first step is to modify the diet, to change the diet texture. Um, so we have the ability to um, thicken liquids. We can also make food different um, textures to make it easier to swallow, as well as having certain strategies, um, meaning uh, certain postures. So if somebody's, we can have them put their chin down um, and see if that helps 
um, the liquids flow to the right direction. Um, but once we've kind of established that they're okay on a certain diet, certainly we start with exercises. And again, you know, I, I put a shout out to my OT and PT friends because, to be honest with you, they taught me everything I know need to know about exercises. <laughs> Um, and actually, in 2001, a company developed um, neuromuscular electrical stimulation for uh, the muscles for swallowing. So that's something our PT and our OT colleagues had been using for quite some time, um, but that just kind of came forward back then to help strengthen the muscles because I always say to my patients that nobody knows it takes muscles to swallow until the muscles that swallow don't work. Right, everybody. It's yeah. just one of those things that we just kind of take for granted. Um, so certainly, um, NMES, as we call it, um, it, has has made some great changes in um, dysphagia. For sure, it's not for everyone. It doesn't work for everyone, um, but it is a really great step to help those muscles get back on track. Beth, what's the biggest challenge for you? Uh, since we're closing now, in the last minute, sure. can you tell me what, what you find the biggest challenge in speech therapy? You know, for me, I have a hard time letting go of my patients. Um, you know, I kind of meet them, and lots of times we're together for a long time. Um, it's not something that's short, and so uh, sometimes these problems reoccur. So I'm with them for many, many years at times. Um, so for me, uh, sometimes it's tough breaking away. Um, but the, the benefits far outweigh anything. When you take somebody from not being able to eat anything and perhaps needing a feeding tube all the way up to being able to eat or drink, um, being able to meet somebody who cannot tell their loved one how much they love them, and at the end of therapy, being able to see that sparkle in their eyes when they're able to finally tell them that, that's the most reward that anyone could ever ask for. Beth, I think you've just emphasized uh, the need for physicians to work more closely with therapists because, you know, Absolutely. we spend so little time with the patient in the room. What, what sure. could we spend? Maybe an hour every few months. Um, but it's the therapist who knows exactly what's going on, what's going on outside of the therapy, right? What's going on right. with their husband or wives, their children, um, you know, what what's going on in their lives in general that impact their lives. And that's Absolutely. why it's been so great to work with you all these years. Thank you for your time today, Beth. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. We're going to take a short break, then we're going to be back to wrap it up and take a look at next week. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Well, thanks for being with us today. I want to thank uh, my guest, Beth Conley, as well as many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Corza has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, this week, I'm on the road. I'm going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, giving a course uh, to the American Academy of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. And I'm looking forward to it because I'm going to be giving the course with my daughter, Catherine. 
Uh, many of you have heard from my daughter Stephanie, who has been on the program from Hartford Healthcare, but my daughter Catherine is also a neurologist who works with me doing neuromuscular disease at the University of Connecticut. And uh, we're going to be giving a course together on peripheral nerve injuries in sports at the meeting. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to finding out some new things in the area of neuromuscular disease that I could share with you next week. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.